Good morning, church. Let's go ahead and pray to our Lord. Our Father, we are privileged to be here this morning. And we realize that um, many on this day uh, did not have this privilege to wake up and to see another day added to their lives. But, Lord, we come here this morning full of joy and gratitude to you. Even as you give us an extra hour of rest, we praise you for that. And we ask you now as we open up your truth, as we open up your word, that you would encourage us in your truth, that you would help us to see uh, the plan, that you would help us to see the mission, that you would help us to understand and realize uh, what our church is all about, what any church, both here locally and abroad and all over the world, must be about. And Lord, we praise you that every so often we can pause just from our regular studies and, and consider and uh, refresh and refocus, Lord, ourselves on our mission, because this is not our mission, this is Christ's mission. And so we ask you, Father, that you would remove any obstacles right now and help us to focus on Christ. In his holy name we pray and ask, amen. Well, greetings, church. Good morning. It's great to be here, bright and early, an hour earlier. And um, like Mike said, this is not going to be our regular time going forward. We will get back to 10 a.m. services. But uh, this morning, we're going to depart, um, as you may have noticed already, from our regular study in Colossians. We're almost there. We're almost done with Colossians. But uh, we thought that since we're celebrating communion today and also meeting together uh, for our members meeting afterwards, we thought it would be good to go back and to remind ourselves why church matters. What is the point of the church? What is the mission of the church? Or as I titled this sermon, the marching orders for the church. In the 1940s, the United States Lines proposed to build a ship called SS United States. Costing $78 million, it was the largest American-built ship and fastest ocean liner in the world. The government invested $50 million into the project with plans to use this vessel to transport 10,000 troops in time of war. The, the USS United States set sail in 1952. It broke several speed records, which still stand today. It was never used, however, as a troop carrier. It made history as a luxury liner that catered to wealthy customers. The SS United States stopped passenger service in 1969. It has been docked at Pier 82 on Delaware River in Pennsylvania since 96, where it remains a popular tourist attraction. Over the many years, it changed its ownership. And even to this day, conservators are raising money in order to restore this vessel or try to figure out what to do with it before it completely rots away. You know, just like the initial plans for SS United States, the church was created for a very specific reason. Unfortunately, too, similar to SS United States, the church often loses sight of its original goal and original purpose. 
It becomes something it's never meant to be. It begins to deviate from its original design and it stops. The church as a whole stops fulfilling Christ's purpose. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 clearly indicates that church has a general whose name is Jesus. And that it is this general, Jesus Christ, who issues her marching orders. He tells the church what to do and how to do it. The church is on a mission for Jesus Christ. And his command must be her number one priority. If you're not there yet, please turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28 begins with a glorious announcement of Christ's resurrection. His disciples, the 12 minus Judas, so the 11, they go up to Galilee to meet Jesus one final time. As we will read, we will notice that when they see Jesus coming towards them, they fall down to worship their king, even as some are still doubting. They don't believe it's Jesus Christ. Yet, in the midst of faith, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of worship, Jesus entrusts his glorious mission to this bunch to the 11. At this point, I think it's, it's important for us to think about how old these disciples were. Oftentimes when we read the gospel, we consider these as grown men, men in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who have been with Christ for many, many years, who know ministry, who know church, who know theology, who know exactly what to do. But I think it's important for us to consider that as most commentators and Jewish scholars conclude, when these men, the 11 or the 12 started walking with Jesus, some of them could have been as young as 15, but definitely no older than 25 to 30. Whenever disciples would follow their rabbis, they would always be younger than rabbis. If we know that Jesus started his ministry in 30, these were teenagers walking around with Christ, observing his mission, learning and soaking in from him. And having spent three years with Jesus, now Jesus is calling them and is entrusting them with a mission. And he says, listen, take this gospel, take what you know to be true to the nations. No degrees, no programs, no official campaigns. Just ordinary people, ordinary men, but empowered by extraordinary God. Please look with me at Matthew 28. We'll begin with verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This right here, church, 
is still true today. Christ uses us to further his purposes and his mission. We just need to constantly remind ourselves of this mission. So I want us to consider this text this morning. I want us to consider this question. What does it mean for the church or for our church, for Grace Hill Church, to march according to the orders of her general? What does it mean for Grace Hill Church to march according to the orders of Jesus Christ, the church's general? And I want us to consider three thoughts, three things this morning. First, we must understand Christ's proclamation. We must understand Christ's proclamation. Second, we must follow Christ's plan, follow his plan. And three, we must rely on Christ's presence. So we must understand his proclamation. We must obey and follow his plan and we must rely on his presence. Let's look first of all at verse 18, understand Christ's proclamation. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This passage to which we refer to as the great commission starts, first of all, with this great declaration, this great claim. In fact, we often read verses 19 and 20 apart from verse 18. We just go straight to the action. Tell me what to do and let's do it. When we do this, we commit a a grave mistake. Everything in verses 19 and 20 hangs on the promise and on the claim and the declaration of verse 18. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In fact, if verse 18 is not true, the rest of this passage is completely meaningless. So we must listen and we must understand what Christ declares to his disciples just before he ascends and goes to heaven. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I want us to look at three thoughts here in this verse. Christ, first of all, possesses authority. Christ possesses authority. He possesses power. He is the almighty God, but This claim here is more than just assertion of omnipotence, like he is powerful, right? When someone possesses power, he's able to carry out his will. He has the means to carry out what he desires to do. But authority here, it speaks of more than just power. It speaks of a formal right to give orders and to direct people what to do. Christ possesses authority. He has legal right to use that power however he wishes. So one can have power without having authority, but one cannot have authority without having power. Christ possesses authority and can tell us what to do. Not only that, Christ possesses, listen, look at verse 18, all authority. Christ possesses all authority. It is an all-inclusive authority. And and notice the terms here, the term all and, and how it dominates this entire section. If you have the text open, look at the text, verse 18. All authority has been given. Look at verse 19. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command them. And look, I am with you at all times, always. 
So all nations, right? All authority, all things, always, all the time. Christ possesses all-encompassing authority, which no man or angel can thwart. And get this, the implication of the statement, that is if Christ possesses all authority, no one else has any. That's the indication here. If Christ says all authority has been given to me, then there's no one else in the world who possesses that authority. And third, consider this, that Christ possesses all authority in heaven and earth, in heaven and earth. Now, if uh, I'm sure most of you have read the gospel of Matthew on uh, numerous occasions and read through it probably more than one time. Matthew here uh, stressed Christ's authority before his resurrection. This is nothing new here. In fact, if you were go to like Matthew 7, verse 29, he, um, there's a, a, a testimony of people who are watching around and they're watching Christ and they're observing him and they're like, this guy, this man here, he teaches with great authority as one having authority. Um, in, in chapter 10, when he sends out his disciples to go out and evangelize his own people, he gives them authority. In other words, he possesses authority and therefore he commissions them to go. In 1127, he says that all things have been handed over to me by my father. So if father is the father of all authority, he is the creator. Everything belongs to him. He hands it over to Jesus Christ. So what is the difference here in 28 verse 18 post-resurrection? Did he get more authority? The difference here is in sphere. The difference is in sphere. His absolute authority is enlarged and expanded to the entire universe. The entire universe. He says, all authority has been handed to me in heaven and on earth. Consider what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 20. He says, the father seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all, all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You know, a very familiar passage in Philippians chapter two, verse nine, for this reason, also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father, the son of man, Jesus Christ, once humiliated and suffering, became the one through whom God's authority is mediated. It is the fulfillment of what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Listen to the prophecy that came true hundreds of years after the fact. Daniel writes and says this in verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, to God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, right, all authority. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. To all the peoples, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. 
Listen, the dominion that was promised to Christ is given here. And here's the the point. Here's the goal of this authority and dominion that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve this Jesus. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Church. Christ is given dominion so that all people everywhere might serve him. But here's the question. How is Christ exercising his authority and dominion today? Some of you watch the news. Some of you are very well aware of your own situation at home or family or churches and and other, and and you're, you're wondering How is this true? If all authority is given to Christ in heaven on earth, how come we don't see it? Where is he? And I will commit to you as the New Testament does that the way Christ exercises his dominion on earth today is through the church, one disciple at a time. Through the church, one disciple at a time. Now, this is pretty amazing, and it's very important for us to understand if we're going to be successful in this mission. I already quoted from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. If you were to read verse 22 and 23, here's what it says. Listen. And he, Father, put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, we're tempted to skip through all this because we know Jesus is the head and we are the body and, and he's full. But, but let me read this again. Consider what he is saying. And the father put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church. Head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head of his body. And the church is the means by which Christ is filling the universe with his glory and with his dominion. The church, not the capital, not the world. The church is the means through which Christ is filling the universe with his dominion and glory. Christ's authority and power are exerted in and through his people. It is through the church that Christ is calling people to himself who will in turn affect every sphere of society. That's why we're called to be what? The light of the world. We're called to be what? The salt of the earth. Listen, nobody in the New Testament is ever addressed this way, but the church, you and I, people who are saved by Christ to follow Christ. And through this agency, we are to influence every aspect in every sphere of society. So through the church, Christ is exercising his dominion on earth. But if we're going to drill down a bit more, we learn that it is through the gospel that Christ's power is demonstrated in the life of sinners. So through the church, but the church has means, the church has a tool which is the gospel to present to those who are dying through which Christ works. Consider what Paul says. He certainly understood that Romans 1 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel 
Why, Paul? Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? Well, because it is the power of God, he says, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is why I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because when I preach the gospel, Christ works. He converts the hearts of unbelievers. That is the power. Look in Ephesians 1, 19, Paul says, knowing what I know, I pray that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Oh, I understand the power of the gospel, but I am praying that the church, as they get converted, would understand what is the greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then later on in Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think according to the power which mightily works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So church, since Christ possesses all authority and is the foundation and is the goal of the church, our reaction is to worship him. That is why when you consider verse 16, when the 11 came up to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus designated when they saw Jesus resurrected in all his glory, they bowed down and they worshiped him. When we understand our general, when we understand who he is, the one who possesses all authority and can direct us and tell us what we ought to do as a church, as individual saints who are brought together into a body whose head is Jesus Christ. We bow down to him. We worship Jesus. Abraham Kuyper rightly said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not a single speck in the entire universe escapes the authority and power of God. And this proclamation is a call to acknowledge the one who lived, the one who died, and the one who resurrected and to whom the entire universe will one day give an account. That is why this Jesus who possesses all authority is the one who will at the end judge the world because he is sovereign over all. Consider what Paul says in Acts verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to man that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Christ Jesus, whom he appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Friend, do you know this Jesus before whom you will stand one day and give an account? Who possesses all authority and power? If not, today is the right day. This morning is the right time to submit and to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. He has a rightful claim on your life. You cannot escape it. He has a rightful claim on your life as your creator and as your sovereign Lord. 
but also since Christ possesses all authority, church, be encouraged. Be encouraged. The church goes out in Christ's power, which means success which means success. That's what I said. Everything in verse 19 and 20 hinges on verse 18. If verse 18 is not there, church, we dare not go. We dare not go because we're doomed to fail. But because Christ possesses all authority, both in heaven and on earth, we go. His plans will not fail because of who he is. So first for our church, to march according to the orders of Christ, we must first understand this proclamation. We must first understand and believe this claim. He has all authority which he exercises through us, his body, his church. But second, notice this. We not only are to understand, but as we understand the proclamation, number two, we need to follow Christ's plan. Follow Christ's plan. Verse 19 Go, therefore. Go, therefore. You know, the church does not decide what its agenda should be. We can't gather here together with the elders of Grace Hill Church and, and, and have this discussion. Brother, what do you think we should go after? What do you think should be our vision, our mission for the next five years? What are we going to do here as a church? Our vision comes from the head. The one who has all authority, verse 18, in heaven and on earth. That is why Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples. This is what he's commanding us to do. This is what he's commanding us as a corporate body to do, but the corporate body will not do anything unless individual saints in the body will be moved to do that. Because we understand who Christ is, the one with all authority, all glory, all dominion. Brothers and sisters, there should be no hesitation on our part to go out and do what he tells us to do. There's only one command here given in this passage, and that is to make disciples, to make disciples. If verse 18 is true, therefore, church, make disciples, make disciples. You know, in the ancient world, a disciple would follow his rabbi to learn from him, spend a lot of time with him, would uh, learn would uh, kind of analyze his, his uh, example. And in turn, after his training is over, over some years, what he would do is he would separate from the rabbi and he would become a rabbi and then go out and like Jesus did, start calling other disciples to himself and make his own disciples. This is how we would continue on for generation after generation. But notice here, Jesus does not give his disciples permission to make their own disciples. We are not called as pastors, as teachers, as uh, regular mature saints to go out and to look for disciples, to make our own disciples. We are to go out and make disciples for Christ, his disciples. The church is commanded to call sinners with the gospel of Christ to trust him and to follow him as their Lord. And the task of, of, of making disciples is not re just reserved for pastors and evangelists. But like I said, for every single follower of Christ. And because Christ has authority, his followers may go in confidence that the Lord is in sovereign control of everything and everyone, both in heaven 
and on earth. And that should give us confidence. And that should give us assurance. Now, how do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? There are three things that we ought to do here in verse 19 and 20. The um, terms here, go at the beginning, and then baptizing in the middle of verse 19, and then at the beginning of verse 20, teaching. So going, baptizing, and teaching. They describe the accompanying actions of the main verb of making disciples. So if we're going to make disciples, then we're going to do this. We're going to go, first of all. So the church must make disciples by going, by going, by going out in evangelism. And notice this, it's very simple, but sometimes we miss this, that Jesus does not expect the world to come to church, but for the church to go out into the world. Jesus does not expect this place here to next Sunday or the Sunday after that to start booming with unbelievers who are knocking down our doors and saying, whatever you have, I want it. But what we do here is we get charged up and reminded of our mission, of what we're all about and why we're saved. In order, as we say amen, right after we say amen, we go out into the world and we go to unbelievers who tell them and tell them, listen, what we have and the one in whom we believe he has claim on your life too. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so therefore he says, go, go as you go. Verse 19, therefore going, make disciples, make disciples. H.B. Brown says disciple making is the Christian lifestyle. Disciple making is not just an addition to what we do. Oh, by the way, you know, in addition to everything else that we're responsible for and in charge of, we have this idea here of making disciples. No, it's a lifestyle. It is not a ministerial elective. We go with the gospel message, the good news that sinners can be made right with God and not have to face condemnation for sin. We go with the love of Christ to the dying world. We go, as Jesus says, to all the nations, to all the nations. And, and, and I think we sometimes lose sight of this, but brothers and sisters, the person and work of Christ is so magnificent. It is so radical that it cannot be kept in the corner of the world. It must go through to the furthest ends. It's not just for us here. I mean, consider what, what the father says to the son in Isaiah 49 verse five. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Here's what he says to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says this, check this out. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. What is he saying here? He's saying that my servant, Jesus Christ, who will come a few hundred years later, after the prophecy of Isaiah, it's too small to, for Jesus to only die for Israel. It's too small of a thing for Jesus to only die for just this one select group. No, his death and his work and the excellence of his name must, he says, go out to the nations. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. Christ's atoning work 
is too great to be applied only to one ethnic group. It must go to the nations. And that's what the plan was. In Matthew 28, when you go to Acts 1.8, it says, and, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses, both in where? Jerusalem, Sacramento, Roseville, Antelope, wherever you are, you will be my witnesses here. And then in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And notice that evangelism, it started locally, it spread regionally, and then globally. The point that is communicated here, that Jesus is not some kind of tribal God. He's not a native deity bound by national borders. That's what they thought of other deities. That's what they thought of other dead gods. You had this nation's God and you had that nation's God. And the point that's communicated here, that I have authority in heaven and on earth. And if I have authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth, then no matter where you find yourself, believer, no matter what part of the world you find yourself, I have authority there. So go, therefore, and make disciples there. Why? Because I have claim on their life there in that part of the world, in that part of the earth. God provided Jesus Christ as the answer to the universal nightmare of sin. That is why he is the answer to everyone. And that is why he is not just reserved to be the God of this or that nation. In Acts 4, verse 12, it says this, and there is salvation in no one else. That's why this is important. Because there's, no, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Why does Jesus matter? It's because he's the only one who can save. He's the only solution to our desperate need. This is why we go. And this is why we make disciples of all the nations. But we make disciples not only by going, we make disciples by, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those who profess Christ, as Lord, Jesus says, you baptize them. You know, baptism is not just a man-made ritual. It's not something that we do here to initiate them into church, or this is kind of the rites of passage for a Christian to get into church membership. Baptism is the first act of obedience for the disciples of Christ. Baptism, here it is, is a public confession of Christ. And it mattered in the first century. It mattered in the first century. Everywhere you look, you read through Acts. The command was repent and be baptized. Why baptism? Why not just join the church, join the small group, and, and, and just huddle around believers and, and be there and, and grow there and mature there? No, but you have to be baptized. Why? Because they needed to demonstrate that what they're professing and what they're confessing is real. And with baptism came many consequences where they were denounced by their family members. They were denounced by their friends. Why? Because they aligned themselves with Jesus. They said, I will no longer do what I do and be what I was and believe what I believed. I align myself with Christ. And that's nothing new because Jesus throughout the uh, earthly ministry, he demanded public confession of him. 
For instance, in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, he says this, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus trying to accomplish here? Here, Here's what he's trying to accomplish. He was pressing upon his believers to, to consider this question. Am I an admirer of Christ or am I a follower of Christ? And those things are radically different. Yeah, I just look at Jesus and says, hey, great man. I love what he do. Um, and I'm just going to leave it at that. He's a man of great ethics, great, of, great speech, great passion. He has this drive that no one else has. And you just admire him as a sort of a leader, as a pioneer, but you don't care to align with him, to follow him, to submit to him. And that's why he says, if you're afraid to align with me before men, then you really don't understand where you are. You really don't understand my mission. You don't understand how desperate you are. Confess me. And through baptism, you pledge your allegiance to Christ and to his church. You confess Christ as Lord. You baptize into the name of the Trinity. D.A. Carson says baptism is a sign both of entrance into Messiah's covenant community, into the church, and of pledged submission to his lordship. So when you get baptized, you're basically saying, I want to please the Lord. Now the Lord is my general. The Lord is commander. He's going to tell me what to do. And I will pray and I will commit to doing what God wants me to do. This is the mission of the church, brothers and sisters. I mean, think about this. Wouldn't it be awesome and wonderful to see God use us, this bunch here, to go out to preach the gospel and to see people saved and in turn to see people get baptized and join the ranks to be further discipled by us here. This is the way the church intended to grow. This is the way the church grew in Acts. One, one commentator says this in light of what we're talking about here. He says, sheep stealing, saint swapping, and membership transfer does not accomplish the mission of the church. This is very interesting because what accomplishes the mission of the church is for us to go out and to preach the gospel and to see people come in, get baptized, and submit to Christ to be further taught to the point where they are themselves making disciples of Christ. That is the goal. And finally, we make disciples by teaching. We teach each other how to live under the lordship of Christ. We teach each other how to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. To disciple a person, John Broadus says, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into a relation of pupil to a teacher, disciple and teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them what a true disciple is. So we go out and we preach the gospel to bring people to Christ through faith and repentance. 
Those who get saved are brought into the church where they are baptized. Then each saint is brought to maturity through regular teaching and obedience. And the church is, oh, the plan is pretty simple, right? Yeah, the plan is simple. We must understand it. We must follow it. So if we're going to be a disciple-making church, Grace Hill, we must teach the word of Christ here. And over the last few weeks, we spent time in Colossians 3, where Paul emphasizes the various ministry of the word, that as we come together here on Sunday, we teach and we preach the word so that we can renew our mind, we can understand the mind of Christ, we can understand the mission of Christ. And then as we get together in our small groups or one-on-one meetings or, or discipleship that, that naturally and organically forms here, we continue to speak the word. We continue to explain, learn from one another so that we continually are taught what it means to obey Jesus in various areas. Different people are going through different trials. And therefore, we need to emphasize different things in our church, but the whole point is that as disciples come in and get baptized, they are taught the word. They are taught how this particular area, whether it's my marriage, whether it's my parenting, whether it's my workplace or my personal struggle and personal sin, how can all of these things be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? That's what church is about. That's what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Teach them to observe all, all that I command. And that's why our vision here, as it has before over many, many years, is to commit to studying scripture and all of scripture. Not to pick and choose passage, but to pick a book and to study through the book systematically. Go to the next book and to study that book systematically. Because we don't want to be caught up in a place where we just preach whatever it is that I'm thinking about. Or what I think is important. We need to be preaching what Christ thinks is important. And that is the entire counsel of his word. That's what Paul says in Acts 20. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In verse 31, he says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. He says, the word of God is what builds you up. It's what trains you up in righteousness, he says in 2 Timothy 3.16. So that those who come to faith and those who are baptized would become disciple makers themselves. That's the goal. The goal is for all of us to go out and to preach. And as some more come in, to train them so that they can do likewise. Here's the thing. You might be sitting there and wondering, is this really for us to obey right now? Is this really for us to obey right now? Is our church, Grace Hill Church, in position to do this. After all, you know, it's, it's quite, quite opposite is happening right now. We're losing people. And those who are here, those who have committed to this body, they hurt in various ways. They need much care. They need much attention. And the answer to this question is yes and yes. Yes and yes. What do I mean? You know, as a church of Christ, our vision never changes Because his vision never changes. 
Our vision never changes because his vision never changes. As I've said before, the church does not decide what its agenda is today, tomorrow, five years from now, 10 years from now. He wants us to follow his plan. And we don't find a more clear, clearer plan than here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 in scripture. And at the same time, brothers and sisters, at the same time, we must continue to equip one another because part of disciple making is teaching one another, is encouraging one another, is loving one another, committing to one another to grow together in greater conformity to Jesus Christ. And so therefore we must do what the situation calls us to do, to commit to each other, to love each other. And, and this, is, this is our commitment to this body to do exactly that. But we must also at the very same time, not be such folks that we just kind of navel gaze the entire time. But we may look up to our Lord. We may look up to what his mission is for us and be encouraged that we are believers who are called, who are enlisted into his service to do this for his namesake. And we are empowered to do that. It is a both and and proposition here for our church. And so I want to encourage you to consider this and to think through what it means for us to be a church that is committed to disciple making. Disciple making is not only for outside. We right now, this very moment at 10.08 are being instructed in the word of God and being taught in the word of God to be more like Christ. And so we must, first of all, we must understand Christ's proclamation. We must follow this plan. We must follow this plan. And third, we must rely on Christ's presence. We must rely on Christ's presence. At the end of verse 20, he says, and I'm with you always. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, this is a bold claim. It's not just a promise. He doesn't say, I will be with you. He says, I am. I'm in your midst right now. I'm with you always now. What it means is that his very presence, his power, his very authority is with us as we make disciples. If we're going to commit to following this plan, then the promise and the claim is that Jesus is with us. And church, we are the proof that Christ is building his church. And this gives us great confidence. If Christ wasn't building his church, we would still be out in the world, dorking around with sin, pleasing ourselves, doing all of these things. But the reason why this is true and the evidence of this truth is that we are here. The Lord drew us through another disciple into his body so that we can do the same relying on him. Listen, Matthew started out in Matthew 1.23 he started out with the gospel with this pronouncement. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's the promise. God with us. And then in the middle, Matthew 18, Jesus said that when the church gathers together, he is there with them. When the church decides to act 
for Christ. Christ is there with them for where two or three are gathered together in my name. I am in their midst. He's there. And at the end now in Matthew 28, Jesus says that when the church decides to go out, not when they're just gathered that I'm there, but when the church decides to get out and go out on the mission, I am with them. I am with them. Our mission therefore is fail proof. If we want to obey this command church, we're not left to ourselves to come up with our own methods, to come up with our own gimmicks, to draw people in so that they stay here. You know how it goes. Whatever you draw people in with, you're supposed to continue to entertain them with so that they remain in this place. But the goal of the church is to draw them with the love of Christ and continue to exercise the love of Christ here. We go in the presence of Christ with the power of Christ, which is the gospel of Christ. In conclusion, in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus says this, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is, a, this is a, a prophecy. The gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, almost 2,000 years later, we're still here. We're still here, which is all the proof that we still need to go on and to preach the gospel. I don't know if any of you know about China Inland Mission, which was established by Hudson Taylor in 1865. It was exposed to a series of persecutions, including the evacuation of missionaries and martyrdom of local Christians in the early 1920s. It was a dark period in Chinese history. 12 CIM workers had been martyred along with five associates. Half of the overall missionary committee, those who committed to become missionary there in China, completely abandoned and permanently left China. In the midst of this darkness in 1929, the China Inland Mission issued a call to pray for 200 new workers over the next two years to come back into China. In support of this call, hymn writer Frank Hutton wrote a hymn as part as a prayer asking God to raise up these workers for China. And this hymn was titled, Facing a Task Unfinished. Now recently this hymn was reworked and republished by Gettys, so you probably are aware, maybe familiar, but listen to the words of this hymn. Facing a Task Unfinished that drives us to our knees. A need that's undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defy thee, defy thee still today, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light. Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save, but Jesus Christ, the Lord. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their life proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition to thee, we yield our powers. O Father, who sustained them, 
O Spirit who inspired Savior, whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired, from cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake, forth on thy errand send us to labors for thy sake. Two years later, in 1931, God answered their prayer and there were 203 new missionaries on their way to China to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an amazing reminder. We march forward with the authority of Christ. We go to make disciples of Christ. We rely on the power of Christ. And we do all this here. We get encouraged. We get built up. And then we go out and we become faithful and remain faithful to our general. Father, we pray to you. I want to thank you. Thank you for an amazing reminder. You are so glorious, God. Your plan will never be thwarted. What you have determined to do, you will accomplish. Oh Lord, as we continue to minister to one another here, in the midst of our own trials, in the midst of these difficult times, Father, help us not to just set a goal and set a mission to just pursue a peaceful time, to pursue a time where we no longer will feel what we're feeling today. Because by doing that, we will fail in your mission. But as we meet with one another, as we encourage one another, as we speak the word of God to one another, and as we submit to the lordship of Jesus, our Lord commands us to go and to proclaim and to continue to equip one another now. Help every life group meeting, every Bible study, every Sunday service. Help us to think of these things as you equipping us to submit to a greater degree to Christ. You're teaching us the full counsel of your word, and today is no different. Oh, Lord, give us the faith to do this. And give us a great expectation for Christ's authority to be demonstrated in the lives of unbelievers who will come and who will be saved and who will testify of the saving power of Christ in their personal lives. We thank you, Father, that we can do this thing because of what Christ has done. When he came, when he died, and he resurrected for us. And this morning, we have this beautiful reminder also, a reminder that we are able to do this because of the blood of Christ. Even considering our church now, we understand that all of us, we have different backgrounds. We speak natively different languages. We look different from one another. We were raised differently. But if we were to boil down to just one common denominator, it will be Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. And so as we come to your table now, and as we celebrate your death and resurrection, may we look at one another, and may we consider each other as brothers and sisters and encourage one another to go out and to be faithful to our mission. You have many people in this city still who are yet to be turned to you. 
And so, Lord, help us. We commit this time to you. Bless us, Father. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.